Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am one of your hosts, John Robb, joined here by my wonderful co-host, Jeff Bears. Jeff, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. I'm a little nervous. This is one of my favorite writers, and uh, <laughs> he's written a lot of stuff. It's pretty exciting. And who are we talking about? We are talking about number one New York Times bestselling author, David Baldacci, who, as of 2018, had over 130 million copies of books in print. That that's incredible, and a guy who pretty much had a grand slam coming out of the gate in 1996 with Absolute Power, which was the Clint Eastwood Gene uh, Clint Eastwood Gene Hackman movie, which was fabulous. Oh, I know, and I remember reading the book and going, "Oh man, this guy's got a career." And yeah, there you <laughs> it go. Sounds like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I want to remind you all that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information, and. The book we're going to be talking about today with David is called One Good Deed, which is going to be out on July 23rd, so make sure you set your calendars for that one. Yeah, and it's set in 1949, so I definitely want to know why he's writing a novel set in the past. Yeah, Exciting. and maybe it's yep. just, it, it could just be some of a challenge, but it should be interesting to find out. So, For sure. Are we ready to go? Let's do it. Here it is. All right, everybody, David Baldacci, number one New York Times bestselling author. Enjoy. Well, welcome, everybody, and we are here with number one best-selling author, David Baldacci. So, David, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks, guys. Good, great to be here. Well, That's it is great, great to have you on the show, um, and it is great to be able to talk to you about your latest book, which is coming out, something which is a little bit of a departure from your normal setting. Uh, the book is called One Good Deed, comes out July 23rd. In any format you want to get it, it is going to be available. You can pre-order it now. So tell us a little bit about what you got going on in One Good Deed. Yeah, it really, in my mind, it started out uh, as a uh, short story that maybe would be published as an e-book. I was going out on tour for Long Road to Mercy last fall. I hit a number of cities, and I wanted something to do when I got back to the hotel because <laughs> I don't really sleep a lot on the road. And I started writing this story set in the late 40s, a time period I really loved. I'm a big crime noir guy. I mean, I love Philip Marlowe and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade and all those. And it's just a great time period for storytelling for a lot of different reasons. And, and you know, it just morphed. And I was writing page after page after page every night. And after about two and a half, three months, I had 400 pages. Um, so it wasn't a short story anymore. And the publisher was astonished when it I sent it to them. They had no idea I was even writing anything like this. Um, but, uh, you know, they were happy about it. And I just really got into it. And I loved being able to take a little time to describe and make it very atmospheric, describe the clothing and the cars and the cigarettes and the weapons and the lingo and the vernacular and all the things that go into that. Because I really had to, I had to invest time to make you feel like you were back in the late 40s um, for this really to be the sort of story that I wanted it to be. Um, and it was a pleasure writing it. I mean, I, I read a lot of books from that era. I watch a lot of TV from that era, a lot of movies, too. My favorite movies of all time are Chinatown and The Big Sleep. And, you know, this is kind of like Chinatown meets The Big Sleep in some ways. And it was just something that really took off, but it wasn't planned. It was never going to be a novel until it became a novel. <laughs> what turned it from that short story to the novel? I think Aloysius Archer, there was a lot more there than I thought there was going to be. I just thought maybe this would be a quick caper. I'd give a little thumb, thumbnail you know, explanation of who he was, what he was doing, why he was in, the, in this little town, um, and something would happen, and then there would be an exit. And maybe you know, I'd do another short story with him. But as I started writing it, I mean, the first chapter, 
I just sort of got into this guy's head and made me wonder about, you know, after World War II, the guy fights for three years overseas, and then he comes here and he gets, you know, in prison on a trumped-up charge, and he'll lose three more years of his life. And back then, life expectancy wasn't what it's like today, so he's pretty much lived almost half of his life and really hasn't done anything. And what would that feel like? Um, so then Chapter 2 became even more complicated than Chapter 3, and all of a sudden I had this sort of this big idea in mind about what I wanted this book to be with him. It wasn't, you know, just a crime caper and a mystery and thriller, although all those components are there. It was really about a guy trying to find his footing again after getting knocked down twice. Well, I, I do have to ask, do you have plans to visit him again? Because I, I just I thought do. this book was um, amazing. I, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I, he was... Um, just a really intriguing person. Again, kind of, you know, Amos Decker, someone I'd never written, written about before, and he sort of jumps off the page for me. And when Achette, you know, got the first the manuscript, and they immediately, Ben Severe came back with a two-book deal because he said, I, you know, I read this in one night, and I love this guy, and he's really fresh and original, and um, I'd like to see him in something else. So, yeah, I'm working on something else with him. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so I, I do have to ask, though, you have a recurring theme about small towns in your novels, and I'm wondering, what appeals to you about small towns and writing about them? Yeah, they are, in some ways, they're like a, you know, the canary in the coal mine. Uh, they're a microcosm of the United States, even those that are not you know, culturally or racially diverse. Uh, they still can tell us a lot about what's happening in the country, and I, I see a lot of parallels between the late 40s and today, actually. Um, after World War II, um, and the economy was getting back on its feet, it's almost like today where the bigger urban areas are strong on the talent and firepower, and that's where people wanted to go. And that's where the jobs and the economy was booming, and that's where all the money was being made. And you had this great sucking sound where a lot of these small towns were being emptied out. And people just wanted to get the hell out because um, the war was over. They weren't going to rely on Everybody was back from fighting, those who survived, and... You know, people were getting married, people were having kids, people were moving to the west, um, people were moving to the east, and these small towns were just getting emptied out and hollowed out. And a lot of that is happening today. So for me, it's almost um, this metaphorical sort of laboratory that you can look at to sort of see what is the future going to look like. Um, in the in the in the 40s, you know, people sort of were able to to look out into the future and say, this is kind of you know, it's going to be a monumental transformational change here where we're going to go from this agricultural farm, local, small-town sort of country, even though there were still some big metropolitan areas even back then, but not nearly what they are today, uh, to a different type of society, and that happened. And um, today, I think, it's happening even more. Um, if you look at uh, just the, the drain of talent going uh, from small places to big places, the urban areas are booming. Um, if you even look at a state like Texas, where you know their 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 uh, areas are booming, but if you look at Houston and Dallas and San Antonio and Austin, I would say that probably 80% of the GDP of the entire state of Texas come from those four places, and uh, they are by far the most populous areas of the state. Um, so it's just for me, it's a microcosm of America, and it's intriguing because it allows me to be able to set my you know my author. Um, you know, telescope or magnifying glass on top of this and sort of peer in and take the roofs off and see what's happening. be a little more difficult in the city of, you know, 12 million people. Um, but here, it's it's like, it's so small. It's almost like, you know, Faulkner's, you know, little plot of earth uh, in Mississippi where, 
he created that, but you know, it was sort of almost like a touchstone for the rest of the world at the same time because from little things come great things. And uh, that's why I like examining these small towns. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, the, the one thing that I always find refreshing because it, is when you set a book back outside technology because so many times with all the books coming out now, it's like technology is a convenience. So how difficult is it for you when you write a book like in 1949 that you can't use those technologies as convenience and you kind of have to use the technology available in 49, which there wasn't really a lot around? Yeah, you really had to do a completely different mind reset. Um, you know, one of my favorite authors of all time, and a really good friend of mine, was Sue Grafton, and phenomenal writer, phenomenal person, and I miss her today as you know as much as the day that she passed. And uh, I always, you know, I read everything that she wrote, and I had the opportunity to meet her quite a few times. She even made a meal for me at her house in Louisville years ago, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and I always envied her because you know. Uh, Casey Milhone, when she had to, you know, track somebody down or you know make a call, she she would stop at the local gas station <laughs> and get out and put the quarter into the phone and uh, make the call. And you know, so with with today, you know, you have um, you've had to change your plotting. I can't write a plausible thriller anymore where you know something happens in even a mid-sized city and um, there's not you know, uh, video evidence of, of it because of the cameras everywhere. So if I say, you know, New York City, this big thing happened and nobody saw anything and there's no record of it and people will be like, what are you, an idiot? <laughs> there's 12,000 cameras on that street. Plus everybody who's there has a video phone, you know, a video capability on their phone and, and information's instantaneous. So I can't have my hero or protagonist running around trying to find a way to communicate something to somebody that's riding in their pocket. Um, so for me, I had to scrap all that, get it out of my mind, and you know, put myself into the shoes of a guy um, who obviously didn't even have access to a telephone um, and had hitch, hitch rides everywhere, and there was no internet and, and no television that at least was available to him. So he really had to fly by the seat of his pants. He had to go and talk to people and figure things out along the way without the benefit of being able to Google anything. So it was almost like you need to get back to the bare essentials of actually having human beings talk to one another, um, which uh, not a bad thing. But I had to just—I had to sort of, you know, just in my mind mentally go in and, you know, perform like an obliviation uh, charm from Harry Potter on my on my technology memory because I couldn't use any of it. <laughs> so I, I'm going to ask you to like go back in time here. And let's start at the beginning with your uh, amazing book, Absolute Power. Love this book so much. Now, I've heard different versions of this. I'm wondering if you could clarify things for me. Did it originally start as a screenplay and then became a book and then a movie? Yeah. It um, originally, um, I had, well, the, the, the one book for me that um, became a book after I started the screenplay was Wish You Well. Wish You Well was a screenplay first, and then it became a book. I pulled it back from the... I was working with a big-time director out there, and I kind of pulled it out of the process because I knew it was going to be very different from what I had written. It was not going to be shot in Virginia. That um, just wasn't in the cards in the big studio system, so I pulled it out of there. But no, Absolute Power, it was really originally called Executive Power. That was the name, and we couldn't use that title um, because there was a movie coming out called Executive Decision, I think Kurt Russell and maybe Steven Seagal. It shows you how long ago it was. <laughs> they were, you know, starring in a thriller. 
Um, so that I thought of the name, well, you know, I just used the Lord Acton quote, absolute power, you know, corrupts absolutely, and so that was the title of the book. But that was a that was a um, novel from the get go. Even though up to that time I had been writing some screenplays and had gotten you know a number of rejections on screenplays and short stories, never had a novel rejected because Absolute Power is the very first novel I ever finished and sent out to anyone. Um, but certainly I've gotten re- rejected in, in other mediums and in other stories. But so yeah, it was it was a novel from the get go, but then it, the title did change, and I had to. I think we even got a letter or something when the, the notice was coming out that you know this big novel had sold, and here was the title and then I, I think it might have been Warner Brothers who said, Hey, you know, we might have a problem with that so I just came by there was absolute power is a better title anyway. Okay, well um, and like I said I love it. And I have to say my personal favorite book of yours is Wish You Well. I just think that book is amazing. And some I'm a huge fan of both the film version they did of that as well as the Christmas train. Yeah. And I also say I have to enjoy King as Maxwell as well and I'm bummed that they canceled after one season. Um, yeah, no, I, I was too. It wasn't anything to do with, our ratings were very strong, and we were the top rated TV show, uh, new TV show you know, on cable that year. It was, had to do with some problems with the producer and the, and the network, and that's why we didn't get picked up. But I was very bummed about it too. I thought the, you know, the chemistry was starting to gel, and the actors were really getting into the roles. But that, look, Hollywood is, you know, it makes Vegas look safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> you know, so I, 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 when I'm in the process out there, and we've got stuff going on, and um, but I never, I never get excited, really get excited until I actually see the finished product on the screen, and then I know, then I know it. When I go to the premiere, then I understand it's really gonna, it's really gonna happen. Until the premiere happens, uh, you know, I don't get too excited. Oh well, so that sort of answers my next question: Is there anything in the pipeline? Yeah, we have. Um, a uh, couple of things. I sold um, the. Well, I had optioned the Amos Decker series uh, uh, to Village Roadshow Studios for a television series. Um, they're very excited about that, and they're working on that. And I created um, a, uh, not based on one of the books. It's called Gray, um, a sort of a spy series uh, with a female protagonist. Um, that I can't tell you. They have a very prominent actress, older actress who is very excited about it, may sign up for the role. Um, that would be probably a cable show, limited series cable show. Um, and we've actually, you know, when One Good Deed goes out, we've already got some a number of feelers from people about uh, this book. They want to read it and see. I mean, um, when Hollywood does films like this and they do them well, I think they tend to do very well at the box office, but there are some meaty roles in this novel, both men and women. Um, that uh, you know, I think might appeal to some people out there. So, so yeah, we pursue things all the time. And people talk to us all the time, and they ask for stuff, and they option stuff all the time. It's just, you know, that's a long way from actually seeing it on the screen. True. Now, being an author, because as you've written some series and you've also done standalones, do you prefer which 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 one to the other? I think earlier on in my career, I I preferred the standalone because it was a. The book was done and out of the way, and I had a fresh start and new ideas or something else. And then as I got further along into my career, I started liking uh, the series better because it gave me additional opportunities to expand on characters and see their evolutionary arc grow uh, farther than I could do in one book. And I think that's why you see me you know, continually going back now. I haven't written a standalone in quite a while um, because it's... Um, 
I think I've gotten more invested in my characters um, the older I get. And uh, when I bring a new character out, it's with a mind that this is, you know, this character is worth more than one book. They're worth mm-hmm. a ser- second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth look. Um, and that's t- that really seems to how I, I start thinking and planning out my novels at this point uh, to be sort of a series. Well, I, I have to ask you about that, though, because um, most of your series that you've done so far seem to end after five or six books, and I'm wondering if that's a conscious decision. It's it's not so much a conscious decision. It's kind of a, a gut thing, and it's also uh, the fact that I thought of another character that I really want to invest in. So I had, you know, I had the Camel Club, and I had Will Roby and King and Maxwell all going, and and um, you know, you have this, you have these slots. You know, my slots right now are spring and fall, um, and for a while I had, you know, one series in the spring and one series in the fall, and then I had this idea for this brand new character, Amos Decker, that kind of just kind of blew me away as I was thinking about it, and. Uh, you know, writers have you know limited bandwidth, just like anybody else doing any other type of job. And my excitement level saw off the rails with Decker that it sort of uh, left all the other series you know in dust for a little bit. And I had to make a decision too. I mean, I'm not you know I do write a lot, but I, I write all these books by myself as somebody that works with me. I don't I don't play well with others <laughs> when it comes to that. Um, so it's not like I can just go off and write five, six, seven books. By myself, that's just impossible. So I had to sort of pick my moments and pick the path that I wanted to go down. Um, and, it, and it just may be that you know, after five or six books, I've written all I can write about that character, or I've exhausted my excitement because excitement is a very critical sort of thing. And um, if you're not excited about the next project, it's probably not going to be a good book, and it's you know it's not going to engage readers in the level that you want it to engage. You know, I, I've been doing this a long time, and the last thing I want is to sort of fall into some type of complacency or formula where I'm just kind of writing the same book over and over again. And by having these different characters in different series, it really forces me to reinvent myself over and over and over again. But that's not a bad thing when you're in the creative process. Well, one of the things I was going to ask you is you can deliver consistently great books, book after book, and you have to be one of the fastest writers I've ever seen. How do you write so fast and still deliver that quality? You know, I write, I think, I write in big blocks. So I don't, I don't count, I've never counted words. I never counted pages. Um, I don't write every day, but when I do write during the course of a day, I write until my tank is empty. So some days I might write zero pages, one page, 30 pages, um, but I'm all in and immerse myself into a book when I'm writing about it. And I think another thing, you know, Mitch Hoffman will tell you that uh, I am the fastest, you know, uh, uh, rewriter in the West. And where other writers, they will expect to get something back in four weeks um, I get it back in four days because when I get that editorial letter in the comments, I look at the manuscript. There's just something clicks in my head where, um, and Mitch, will, Mitch Alton could tell you this as well, that he'll make a comment about something happening on page 30 that I will address, but it makes me think about um, something else that I needed to fix and make a whole lot better on page 412 and a whole thing, you know, a whole theme running through the book. And I go and make those changes too, but I do it because all of a sudden it's like my mind becomes computer. Every detail, every word, every character 
uh, in the book is firmly in my mind, and I just tear through it, and there's nothing else in the world. And I love that part of the process. I don't dread it at all. I, you know, I anticipate, you know, with a great, with you know, great anticipation and excitement, uh, receiving comments back, because I know that's my chance to go in and turn a pile of pages um, into something really special. Wow, that's cool. Now I remember EA interviewing you probably about eight years ago, and you said that if you thought of an idea, you always had a pad of paper by your bed. You would wake up, you'd write it down, and then you do you still do that? Is that still part of your ritual? I, I do, and um, I just, you know, my my wife gave me these um, band book um, notebooks, you know, the spiral notebooks. They're huge pages. You can lay the whole thing flat, and I've, I've um, been working on the, on the new um, book for the, uh, for the spring with the new Amos Decker novel, and I just loved, you know, sort of how this thing is set together. I came in on, on a Sunday to my office and spent about six hours here, and there was nobody here, which was great, and I just filled page after page up with thoughts and ideas and plot points and maybe potential chapters, thematic elements, you know, uh, current themes running through the novel, some research and all that. Uh, so I, have a, I always have notebooks at hand, and so I said, you know, you got to. She only had one of them, though. So I said, you got to find out where you, she bought it in a used bookstore in Richmond, Virginia, when she was down there visiting someone. And so finally, she found the barcode, like on the inside back of the book, and she scanned it and found that uh, Books a Million had all of these things. <laughs> so she ordered like six of them for me from Books a Million. So I've got these, and it sounds like a really trivial thing, but. You know, pens and paper, you know, are kind of special for me because, um, I, as I tell people, I think better in cursive. So when I'm writing things out on the paper, um, my mind is, you know, is a lot more acuity with my mind, I think. Um, but, yeah, it's – but the, cool, the, the key thing about that is you might think it's a really cool idea um, when it, you know, sort of a epiphany pops into your head and you, and you wake up and you write it down. And then the next morning you have to look at it. And one thing that I've changed over time is I used to jump on everything that I would think of and off I would go writing and writing and writing. And then all of a sudden it hit a wall and realize that, you know what, I really was not as excited about it as I thought I was. And I ran out of fuel and, you know, it was a bad experience. And so now I let it ruminate. I just kind of like let it marinate like, uh, you know, stuff you put on chicken before you throw it on the grill. <laughs> Because you have to understand, is this, does it have enough meat on the bones to be a long format sort of story? Well, you know, can it carry 450 pages and all the elements that need to go into that? And that takes a little bit of thinking. So I don't jump on everything right away. I may have a really good idea, but I think about it a thousand different ways from Sunday and test it and probe it and shock it and kick it and see if it's got the, you know, everything I need to, to fit a long haul. Um, I think I was a doctor in previous life because I can't read my own handwriting. So <laughs> it's nice to hear. <laughs> a lot of us have that problem. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, has there ever been a book where you started writing it and it just wasn't working? Or did you really like it, but maybe your agent or editor said no? Yeah, there was. Uh, it would only happen one time. For me, and that was a book called Last Man Standing. It was a sort of very testosterone-fueled um, story about um, a sniper on the FBI's hostage rescue team, their elite, you know, HRT team. And it was a very long book, very complicated book. And I had written, I don't know, 150,000 words in March. And this is a book that it was going to be a fall book. I really needed to get up to the publisher, you know, May, June. And things were happening in the periphery of my family, extended family, some, some problems, serious problems that I was sort of drawn into because I'd been a former lawyer and all that. So, 
And I think a, a lot of those issues affected how I was writing this book. So when I, I gave it to my wife, I gave it to my agent, I gave it to you know editor, and they all came back, and the consensus was that you know something is off with this because this is not you. And what you know, what is this? And I take you know editorial comments and, and constructive feedback very seriously. And I talk about this a lot in the master classes, the whole section that I did for the masterclass dot com and about how important it is. Not every word you write is set in stone, and you have to give the respect to other people who are professionals in their field because all they're trying to do is the same what you're trying to do, make the book as absolutely good as it possibly can be. So I listened to all of these comments, and I figured, look, if everybody is saying the same thing, then there's a problem. I remember going back to my office, and in one day I cut 135,000 words from the manuscript, just slashed the shit out of it. And I had 15,000 words left, and I had two months and got my head straight and wrote another 140,000 words. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly what happened and turned the book in and it was the book I should have written in the first place. And, you know, I, got a, I remember getting a starred review in Publishers Weekly when I thought that would be impossible because I literally wrote this book in seven weeks. Um, but it was born out of, you know, frustration, anger with myself um, because I didn't get it right the first time, and I let outside influences sort of dictate how I was writing a story, which you just should never let it that happen. You should let you know the story unfold as the story should unfold. Um, but sometimes those emotions, you know, anger and frustration and desperation at the same time, can really fuel a creative spirit. And so I just wanted to overdrive. But that's the only time it's ever happened. I hope it never happens again. I try to you know work very hard <laughs> to make sure it does not. Right. Um, but you know, it's not always smooth. Well, and also I'm curious, of all the wonderful characters you've created, especially for the different series you've done, is there one that you like the most? I know it's asking to pick your favorite kid, but I'm curious. Yeah, it is. It is. I, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I can pick my favorite kid. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I, I, I can pick my favorite kid depending on the day. That's what there the, you what go. The other, the, the what day. the other kid did that day. <laughs> right. Pick a favorite. Exactly. Um. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, what's the new fresh thing I'm working on because that's the one I'm most excited about. Uh, but, I, you know, I would, ha- I would have to go back to, you know, um, you said Wish You Well was your favorite novel. I would probably go back to Wish You Well. And the characters in that novel meant a lot to me, more, more than just, you know, writing a story. And I go back to a character like Oz, who I really, the younger brother, who I really related to personally, and Diamond, who in many ways I related to as well. So I, I think if I had to pick, you know, a favorite character, it would probably be coming from that book. If I had to pick a favorite, you know, character from my thriller series, um, that would be really, really difficult. And probably as just a default answer, I would say someone like Amos Decker, just because he's so different and still fairly new, you know, in my in my arsenal and. But I have to say, you know, um, Aloysius Archer is quite a pull for me, too. And um, I was, I was had a long drive yesterday. I went out to go to a business meeting in Pennsylvania, and um, I popped in the CDs. Till they'd sent me the audio book down, and they had an actor who had never read one of my books before uh, who was reading it. And, you know, the, it was a three-hour drive up and a three-hour drive back, and it went by like nothing because... I was just mesmerized by it because when you listen to the audiobook, you're listening to an entirely different performance of your written work. And even though I knew everything that was in the book and what was going to happen, um, it was just a you know pleasure to hear it performed. And you know I, I like him. He's just 
he's got style about him. He's got some rough edges. He's a, you know a diamond in the rough, but he's got a good heart. Sometimes his moral compass is off, but usually gets back to where it needs to be. And he's just a guy out there trying to survive during tough times. And you know that could apply to a lot of us. That's cool. Well, David, what is the best place for everyone to find out more about you? Um, I have one of those things called a website. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. so you Kind of lead you into that one, I guess. You want to see? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, com, And that also is linked to my uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, which I understand are, you know, becoming really popular. You know, you know there might be a, a, really a world out there with this Facebook thing. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about uh, who knows? <laughs> I I'm, I will be interested to hear the history written about social media twenty years from now. So, where do, where do, where is it going to come down to that it was a a good thing for the most part or a bad thing for the most part? So, I think we're we're seeing right now or you know things that ten years ago nobody really anticipated it, it could have happened. But I guess human beings, what they are, they can take any good thing and make it into a bad thing. That's for sure. And then that's <laughs> now you have a book. <laughs> now I have a book. <laughs> <laughs> then you have a book. So, hey, David, well, we want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, wish you nothing but the best. Of course, the latest book is called One Good Deed. Make sure you go out July 23rd. Again, whatever format you want it in, it's available. So, David, thanks again so much. We appreciate it. No, thank you, guys. I always enjoy hanging with you. I really do. Thanks All so much. Right. You have a good one, man. We need you to come out here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, I know. Cool, man. All right, man. You have a good one. Thanks so much. Okay. You guys too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye.